Camera speed. Camera set. Action. Hello to all you listeners out there. This is Ryan Rose coming at you from the south end of University of Denver campus. I'd like to welcome everyone to episode seven of Moving Pictures, the Project DU Film podcast. Today with me is our co-host, Abby Skadden, and as always, Dr. Sheila Schroeder. Welcome. Hey. Hello. Together we are joined by a very special guest who has been working alongside Project DU Film as the production designer, Angela Forrester. Angela was formerly part of the University of Denver as part of the art department faculty where she helped develop programs including communication arts and visual communication theory studies. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a, a real treasure to be here, especially as the redheaded stepchild of the filmmaking production world. <laughs> so not true. So not true. And we'll get to the bottom of that. <laughs> well, welcome, Angela. We are also joined today by two of the production design assistants from past Project DU film productions, Sammy Lobato and Sarah Bacon-Maldano. Welcome, Sammy and Sarah. Hello, hello. Hello. Why don't you two give us just a little bit about yourselves and your involvement with Project DU film and where you're at currently in your careers? Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Bacon-Maldonado, and I was an undergrad student at the University of Denver, but I'm currently a graduate student at the University of Denver, so I'm still here. Um, I was a film minor at DU, and I majored in creative writing and communication studies. And when I heard about Project DU Film, I was so excited just because I wasn't able to take part of, like, the narrative film sequence and everything else that everyone else in the film major was doing. Um, but I was still very much able to get involved, and that made me really happy. Hello, uh, my name is Samantha Lobato, and I graduated from the University of Denver in 2017. Um, I was a double major here at the university, um, studied um, film here um, and studio art. Um, so two, uh, two departments that um, I found that eventually would mesh really well together. But um, while at DU, I was able to take uh, several, you know, smaller um, courses um, here in the uh, film department with the narrative and the, um, the doc sequence, which were uh, pretty amazing. But um, I was introduced uh, to Project DU Film um, my senior year, a senior year here at the university, and and that was the the really big project that we got to participate in that year. So it was very fun and super exciting. Now, Angela, you've spent the last five years in narrative production design. So could you tell us what that journey has been like as both a learner and a producer of this type of work? Yeah, I started first with um, documentary news hours, children's programs, and things like that, and then. When Sheila approached me and asked if I wanted to work in narrative and did I have the experience, I panicked and then looked back into all of my prior exposures, both educational, teaching, and um, hobbies, interests, all those sorts of things, and realized that the space that happened between dialogue was the space that I already played in for many decades. And hmm. those moments of visual communication that happen behind the people is the, the world that I'd already been operating. I just needed to make sure that I was true to the script and all decisions that happened visually related back to the script. And that's the first time I'd ever had a script to work with versus a content description to work with. Mm. And Angela and I assure each other every time we start one of these productions that if we're not frightened out of our minds it's <laughs> at, at most junctures, <laughs> then we're not doing something correctly. So Angela has been an absolutely amazing partner to have 
since the beginning, since the beginning. So um, it's uh, it's particularly uh, awesome to have her here in studio today talking about her craft. Yeah. Hey, Angela, can you get us a dead deer? Angela, how about a gurney? Angela, how about a 1950 convertible, preferably pink? <laughs> <laughs> and that last one was her own doing. Like, I didn't ask for it, but she delivered. Over-delivered. And that's the thing with Angela. She oh, she um, always over-delivers. Oh, stop mm. it. It's, it's absolutely true. So as for your time at the University of Denver, we understood your undergrad experience was more so focused on visual communication theory composition, color theory, texture and image, and classic media. Could you chime in about which of these you most utilize while you're working on a, on a set, if not all of them? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so when I read a script for the first time, this is now my fourth project, I look in terms of color theory, first and foremost. How does color communicate? Because film is, first and foremost, a visual media, especially from its history. So when color gets applied, I think, how do colors coordinate together, and then how do they communicate with things? Um, I rely so heavily on composition and rules of composition. I never set the frame. That would be so wrong. But once frame is set by the director of photography, it's my job to make sure someone's eye doesn't roll off the page. Something's not clashing. Something's not coming out of someone's head. And all these other things that are just formal— but even more formal are those moments of communication that occur when you choose what brand of cigarette somebody's going to hold, uh, whether this flannel has plaid or not. Those are all indicators of someone's backstory. And if you had told me five years ago I'd be so obsessed with backstory, I would have laughed. Because I used to just say backstory, blah, blah, blah. Now I want to know that 60-year-old is supposed to have stuffed animals in her truck. I want to know what was her favorite animal when she was 10. Mm. Did she collect something? Um, I, I kind of want to know these because it's it's in service of the narrative, and especially with short films, you have so little time. All these things come together 100% of the time. Um, the color can't overtake the objects. The objects can't overtake the color, and nothing overtakes the dialogue. So that's kind of, I would say, all of it. And the more I got into narrative film, the more I realized that there's a reason why production designers come from art departments, typically, because of those focuses either at the undergraduate or the graduate level. Right. Fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about communication theory just real quick? Or excuse me, the yeah. um, visual communication theory and what that entails. Yeah, and that was really more my master's degree program, really focusing on objects and how they communi communicate and the sort of semiotics of objects and language when you put them next to certain gestures. And, and I always came from the world of... Um, you know, print or TV, but it was always a matter of if somebody's wearing one color and they say one thing, that means something. You hold a glass cup and it's made out of porcelain, you think one thing. If it's made out of faux fur, you're saying something else. They're both glass cups, but they say different things. So that became part of my bag of tricks. And when you work in film, that became kind of a design requirement when looking at a script was convincing everybody involved that it's not decorating. It's not home decor. It's not costumes. It's design. All solutions in a film have to be a designed solution serving a purpose. Hmm. So it's kind of a really rich experience to be with students going through, like, the goodwill because the clothes need to look used and loved. And they'll say, oh, wouldn't this be awesome? Look how cool this is. And I'm like, yeah, those are cool, but what do they do to serve the narrative? Do hmm. they drive the narrative? And if I'm going to pitch to a director something they didn't bring to me, I need to have a real purpose. It can't just be cool or hip. or So sometimes it gets to be a really good moment of, experience when talking about, yeah, I love a red wall, but what does that mean in this film? Sheila and I just did a site visit 
And there's a lot of colors in there that aren't part of our palette, and they take someone's eye and brain and ideas and memory and take them to another place. We don't want that place. We only have mm -hmm. 20 minutes, so every place we send them to has to be rich and right on. So visual communication became, like, it's like my backbone. I don't know. They're, they're the double whammy. I, I wouldn't do the undergraduate without the graduate in this world. Like, they both are imperative, unless you just want a pretty picture. Um, but when I was teaching, that was, like, something I would tell people now. You have an audience, you have a message. Those are the two things we need to focus on. And in my world now, the director is my, is my, my client, and the audience is who that particular director has told me we're shooting for or trying to communicate to. Fascinating. To focus on some works you've obviously spent a lot of time on for Project DU Film, everyone knows the classic, or at least everyone should know, Scary Lucy. You were the production designer, and Sammy here helped you in sculpting the Scary Lucy statue used in the film. Can you tell us a bit about that process? Um, was this your first time, uh, excuse me, was this your first big gig in terms of sculpting, or had you done other projects like this one before? Are you kidding? They scared the pants off me. <laughs> I hadn't touched sculpture in 25 flipping years, and I never took ceramics. And Sheila first said, I reached out to the art department. I connected with a visiting lecturer who said, yes, he can help with this sculpture. And she also had a student who was a double major. Welcome, Sammy. And I couldn't have been more relieved. Well, within the first iteration, the director or the person from the art department said, oh, I'm really busy. I can't help. And um, I said, okay, well, I guess we're not going to build a mannequin. And went from everything from thinking about how can we make a, this sculpture look real and fool the eye. And HD has so much better properties than our own eyes that it had to fool the mm. camera. So in comes Sammy. And I'm so excited because Sammy just graduated. She's got this double major. She sort of really likes sculpture, I've been told. I even called up a faculty member that she'd work with. She came by with flying colors. So decided that we we're going to have a mannequin. The best way to do this would be buy a generic mannequin and use my daughter's modeling clay, air dry clay, to build the face. And then we'll just use that model and then do a bunch of stuffing and fluffing and make the sculpture. Well, Sammy shows up the very first morning. We're going to meet each other. And I'm so excited because I'm going to have her sculpt the whole face. And um, Sammy walks in, and I was not prepared for what I had come through the door. And I mean this in the most respectful way, but I was using Sammy, and I will admit I was abusing her. You're the sculpture person. You're doing the part that I don't want to touch. <laughs> Sammy? Yeah, so um, it was obviously, um, Sheila talked to me about um, participating in one of the big props, and it was the prop of the film. Um, it, the film's entirety kind of float around this entire sculpture. So it was it was really exciting to get to be able to work on this project. So I didn't really know what to expect. I had never met Angela. This was my first really big um, film set. Um, but I rolled into Angela's carport and there was standing in front of me um, like a six foot tall mannequin. And I was like, okay, this is all right. Let's get started on this. And um, <laughs> something that Angela didn't know about me prior to meeting me um, was that I was born um, with my right arm amputated right below the elbow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she didn't 
she didn't think of it one way or another. She just went for it. You know, she was like, well, we're going to get you started on this. We're going to, you know, figure out how we're going to get this done. And Angela um, spoke a little bit about my background, but um, sculpture was my focus in um, my art um, side of things here at the university. And um, I didn't, I don't think she knew the extent of my sculpture um, um, abilities. And so when she handed me a pile of clay, you know, she was she was manipulating it. I manipulated it. We were able to give each other some um, some feedback on it, and it started happening really fast. I mean, it was all it all came together really fast. And um, what I appreciate about Angela so much and her um, her style of working is she brings such a zest to whatever project she's working on. Um, there's always such a wonderful sense of humor, um, joking and laughing, and really a lighthearted um, environment to work on. So that was really a treat for me um, to kind of get rid of those nerves and you know being on my first big set. Um, so I really appreciated that about her style. But um, on the other hand, she's also very focused and she's also very serious about her craft and she holds everyone around her to such a high standard um, that you kind of, you know, you you step into her carport, her big office, and you you hold your head high a little bit, um, a little bit more than you would have before, because, you know, it's a, um, she takes things seriously, and you, you really want to, um, you know, work hard around her since she's working so hard herself. And hmm. while we were working on the sculpture, I had never made something like this, especially for film. Um, it's always been for a gallery setting or something like that. But this was going to be seen from every angle as we possibly could, from below, from above, to circling the camera around it. And so it was a really fun Experiment with materials. Um, I remember many afternoons and in the in the hot sun, we were messing with resin. We were messing with starch. We were messing with different materials I had never worked with. But mm. with Angela's, you know, get it done attitude and her um, willing to experiment, we really pushed ourselves to the limit and um, worked with different materials. And we figured it out, and it ended up being a great, amazing sculpture that hopefully, you know, Sheila and and the director and everyone who initially envisioned it while writing the script were really proud of it, and hopefully, it conveyed visually what we needed to convey. It was it was it was ugly. It was really <laughs> ugly. Um, the part that I have to say is two parts here. Um, this what we thought we would solve the problem of making something stiff enough to be able to be carried on camera by the SEAL team didn't hold up. And it was one of those bag of trick moments. You mentioned what do you fall back on in your education? Well, I also fall back on home improvement because in my carport <laughs> were a couple cans of spray foam. And it was that spray foam we shot up her dress to actually turn it into a stiff enough form for four people to grab the sculpture without giving way. So the expandable foam, I mean, at one point it looked like a quinceanera dress with a lots of layers of froth until we painted it bronze. And once we painted it bronze, the other part that I have to share is a friend of mine is the uh, curator of the National Gallery in D.C. He thought I had collected a Prohibition-era bronze sculpture. And I thought, if I can fool Harry Cooper's eye, <laughs> then maybe, just maybe, I would fool Fraser Lockhart's red camera. Like, that, maybe, yeah. just maybe. And, and that, that, they pulled off a miracle. I mean, honest to God, when I walked over there and saw just this, you know, plastic uh, form that was the mannequin, I was like, how does this become Scary Lucy, right? 
But I knew I had faith uh, <laughs> in Angela and certainly then what Sammy brought to it uh, as well. And the pictures that we have of this statue coming to life in Angela's carport uh, are just absolutely amazing. So maybe that's something we can put up on the, uh, on the websites to accompany this episode uh, so that people can see that process and see you guys working on it and, and see the life that you breathed into our, our very own Scary Lucy. Oh, yeah. How many t- rolls of duct tape did we use to mass it out? How many buttons did we find before we found the right set of buttons for the earrings and the Wilma Flintstone pearl necklace and the right jar to hold in the hand for the Vigivita Vitamix? Which happened to be a lotion bottle. A lotion bottle. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I gave you that the, lotion bottle. Yeah. yeah. Hot glue to the mannequin's hand. So, right. I mean, <laughs> never underestimate hot glue in a zip tie. <laughs> totally. That's my MacGyver. <laughs> And I just got to say, like, I've seen Scary Lucy. I had no idea that that was not a real statue until this very moment. So that's what? really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was an expensive buyback of my daughter because I went through all her air dry clay and she let me know it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mommy, that's mine. Whenever she sees me pulling things out of the dress-up bin for a film, she reminds me that she's keeping an inventory. <laughs> well, now, and Angela, I, I want to go off script just a little bit here. Angela has uh, an amazing daughter, Lena who has uh, been on two of our sets so far, Happy Effing Valentine's Day and uh, Scary Lucy. And when I see Angela with Lena teaching her own daughter, right, the tricks of the trade, (laughs) we were on a scout um, just a couple of days ago, and Lena was there making amazing observations of what was happening in this bar um, the the um, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree, <laughs> but this is the kind of education that that Angela takes to the set, right? So Sarah and Sammy are just two examples of 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 students who have who have learned from Angela. But I'm I'm like her number one fan because <laughs> she teaches me so much. I mean, which, when she was talking about uh, how everything works in service of the story, I've taken some of the things that she's taught me to my own classroom and pass that along to my students. Oh, so it is um, it is very much a trickle-down uh, learning curve when it comes to uh, Angela, her crew, and certainly having Lena on set uh, is another bonus. Yeah, let's not advertise her age because I'm sure they're child labor laws. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, Sarah, you... You know, you came from film, but then I I remember you telling me very discreet things about your aha moment about production design. And I know I'm off script here, but I do want to bring Sarah in, too, because she comes from a writing background. And she had very specific expectations. Um, so I decided to do a film minor, mainly for the writing component. So I majored in creative writing, and that's where my heart is. Um, fiction writing, hybrid pose, prose poetry, um, and just kind of incorporating all of these, like, details into like one solid piece that's where my heart is Hmm. and I thought oh I'll do script writing that sounds fun I quickly learned that that's not where I want to (laughs) be just because script writing is very much like kind of to the bones it's like what are we giving the actors what are we giving the director to kind of guide the process but I'm like where does this other detail come in and that's what I found with production design and Angela It's just like all of those little details, all of the things that you see are all very much the production designer's duty. And I was very excited to be on set with Angela. She's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Um, (laughs) And 
just constantly being able to show up and that maybe like not really knowing like what's going on. But Angela's always like, this is why I'm doing this or explaining all of her choices at large was very, very beneficial to my process. Um, And I'm currently in a master's program for education and I am concentrating in teaching secondary English, which is also where my heart is. But I want to bring more film education to public schools and kind of modeling after like what I've had here at DU, the education here, and especially with Angela, it's really inspired me. It's just there's so much that young people can learn and take away and use in this art form. Mm. Um, And I just want to harness that into something that's more accessible for younger students. What year of grad are you? So I'm doing a one-year program. Okay. um, So I'll be done in June, which is, it's very intense. (laughs) It's currently like week eight or nine right now. (laughs) That's exciting though. You're so close. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. So I'm curious about, I know you talked about making stuff look good for a camera. Um, Is the style and process for designing film sets about the same across mediums? So for example, theater sets and television sets, um, or are they complete opposite? Well, I, you know, unfortunately I cannot speak to theater. That's that's probably my weakest link, and I'll be really honest. But but I can project some things. And I never worked in narrative television. So when I think of television, I think about where I've worked, which is PBS. So it's mostly documentary, information, magazine. And that's always about um, the set and the decisions and the costume and the wardrobe and everything really being secondary to the subject that's being discussed. And everything is sort of um, like a book jacket to that. And so TV's more subtle, especially with the advent of HDTV. You you have to be equally as precise in your level of craft, but you don't want anything to distract from the talent. And the talent is independent. So you're you're sort of lifting them up and framing them like a nice mat or a picture frame would to a piece of artwork. And in TV, when I think about the projects I've worked on, the actors or the people having the conversation are the artwork the set design and the other choices are the mat and the frame. When I think about narrative film, well, let me go to theater first. So theater is projected across large spaces. The camera frame never moves. It is a frozen frame. Your audience is fixed. Everything's fixed. And so I'm sure those design decisions have to be different because you're projecting across large environments in, in a fixed environment, which, you know, there's a whole thing about film history when the camera became mobile off of its pivot and all that stuff. So I'm sure theater has its own real specifics with lighting and gestures and how you have to engage. I I don't, I'll be honest, that's not my area. That's the one, my like I said, my weak link. Mm -hmm. What I've learned from working on four films now is that in film, everything has to be way more subtle and your decisions are not the frame and the mat, but they are the other brush strokes that happen in conjunction with the dialogue and the narrative. And things to be authentic have to be more accurate. They have to be more precise. And they're not decorative. They have to be designed, like mm-hmm. even more so. Um, you know, I was just reviewing television sets because I'm working on, on a project for PBS in Utah. And I was looking at some set designs. And if you look at, like, Queen Latifah, they've done an amazing job of looking at some textures and colors that come from the African diaspora. And that's on the set. But there's still some flowers and things that really aren't necessary, you look at Ellen DeGeneres' talk show, and there's the um, Hollywood skyline, but yet there's some of these organic, natural touches. But yet it's still very glossy feeling, which is sort of what Ellen projects. But these sets are always in service of their actor. In film, we are blended with them. The, the, the actors 
evolve from within our spaces that we create. And it's more of a organic, which means it has to be really accurate, lit beautifully, composed beautifully, and chosen beautifully. Hmm. Um, and like I said, the backstory is everything in film. And I never gave that any credence until five years ago. So I am sorry. May culpa. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, backstory. Never. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm a convert. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just hearing about some of your, like we were talking earlier before we started the recording about just the cigarette pack that you were working on and just like how specific it was and how important it was to have a certain word and a certain look and a certain texture to that just one piece of prop. Yeah, you know, you know that one prop is like the script says this one particular character in her 60s is smoking a cigarette. And I asked Sheila, well, what brand does she smoke? And, you know, no slam to Sheila, but she was like, um, um, I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> let me put it this way. Is she a Virginia Slim? American Spirit, or Marlboro. Boom, Sheila knew, Marlboro. Mm. She didn't know it until we put out the examples, but they all indicate a different demographic. Mm. Advertising is so successful at narrowing down markets that if you really want to stick with what's already been educated out there, you kind of work within a certain vocabulary. Mm. And Virginia Slim says one thing, and Marlboro says another. And just to be careful and make sure I'm accurate in my research, I've gone to a couple of friends Describe the character, and I said, "What would she smoke?" And reds, Marlboro reds, every single time. Mm. So that means we're, we've kind of hit the market with that one simple gesture. Fascinating. Ugh. Yeah. Well, we have a whole script full of those gestures. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I don't sleep well at night when, I, when these projects are on, and that, and that I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and can't get back to sleep. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Hearing Angela's thought process on something as minute as a cigarette box really is a testament to how she looks at these characters and the details she puts into um, picking and choosing um, the things that are, you know, the, the, how she picks and chooses what the character is wearing, what kind of socks is this character wearing? Um, I do a lot of the wardrobe elements on the set with Angela once we are there and everything's kind of moving around. So it really gets down to those really, really details, um, hairpins and shoelaces. Earrings, Earrings matter! <laughs> yeah, like, and it's in my own um, film life and how I um, come at my own film projects is it really translates to the details and the psychology of that character um, and not only looking at the character in the sense of what we see from um, the beginning of the film to the end of the film and their evolution during that, but where is that character going after that? Where did that character come from? And using these details as a way to tell that story as well. Yeah, you want me to have kittens on a set? Forget to take the socks off the actor and the actress at the end of the day and put them in a little baggie, and that will make me really angry because I never know the next day if an ankle is going to be. And if that ankle wasn't wearing the same sock the day before, I will be so not happy. <laughs> and which hand had the bracelet on? Was it the left hand? Which oh. finger had that ring on? So it's really paying attention to those details, not only for continuity, but for the psychology and the backstory of the character. Hmm. Yeah. And Sarah can probably talk about how many picture angles I make her take on set. Yeah. Just visiting... Um, the sets are kind of before we put all of our little things in there. It's just like, what do we have to work with? But also, what are the possible ways we're going to be looking at it? Huh. 
And we have to consider everything. We have to consider if there's, like, a bunch of, like, extension cords in the corner. Like, that's not very an attractive shot. Um, but just thinking about everything, because the camera eye isn't always going to be, like, straight on, whereas, like, the human eye would. Hmm. Just, like, maybe it's kind of coming at something from a different angle, coming from at it from below. So we really have to think about all those things. Labels. Are they labels on things that shouldn't be there? Um product placement (laughs) (laughs) things we want to avoid that was a really cool insight into what it's like to be a production designer we're going to take a brief break from the conversation and do some trivia well-known production designer and on-set artist a todd holland worked as the art director for which famous movie Oh, come on. I had a kid 11 years ago. Like, I have gone to the movies. <laughs> years? Are you kidding? I, I live with, like, uh, YouTube clips. <laughs> I keep them on that one. You'll have to tell us the answer, Abby. All right. It's The Hangover. Mm. Okay. Well, then I want to tell you at least one production designer that, like, I like to give as an example um, when talking about production design mm-hmm. um, would be Steve Sackland. And Juno, the film Juno. Mm. And if you really want to, my favorites. Yeah, and if you really want to kind of look at a film without audio and pay attention to the color coding, mm. the objects, uh, the way that just those environments are steering you. When you're in the house of Juno and her parents, there are warm reds, lots of family portraits, layers and layers of life, and a lot of detritus of just people living their life. You go to the couple that want to adopt. It's clean, sterile, controlled, contained cool grays, a lot of slick surfaces. Hmm. And so I I love to show those stills as um, kind of what production design can be. I mean, mean, we always know the big names, Wes Anderson and things like that, but that's kind of his own shtick. Um, These more subtle films are also kind of valuable. Um, and I'm sorry about the hangover, but I, I didn't have a, my brain fell out 11 years ago, and I'm just now getting it back in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. All right. So the next question we've got. Which specific installment in a famous franchise is deemed one of the most expensive movie sets in history, coming in at over $387.5 million? Ooh, ooh, I know that one. Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, um, sorry, Stranger Tide. Yes, there it bing, is. Bing. Bing, bing. you know, but still, advertisers pay more per second to produce a um, a thirty second commercial than films will produce for their even with their special effects. Really? Yeah, th- because they'll spend that much more time with attention to detail, and everything has to be so right. Now that number is about five years old, but five as of five ten years ago, you still spent more per second of advertising budget than a feature film would spend in that same amount of time. Wow. I would be very, very interested in see what Angela can do with a three hundred and eighty million dollar budget. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Oh my god, I wouldn't sleep for years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. I never knew the exact numbers, um, but I'm curious to what's on average um, for the project you film. Have you like what the average budget is for <laughs> this particular department? And I'm interested to yeah. see hearing that because I know that um, Angela can stretch that penny into <laughs> so many different ways. Um, so I'm interested in hearing the numbers to see kind of a yeah. perspective. Well, that's a great question. That. So um, Angela is not just a production designer, but she's a magician <laughs> um, because she, um, I give her a tiny, tiny budget and she makes it go uh, in ways that you can't even imagine. So for this upcoming film, I think we've budgeted $2,000, which is um, about 
um, twice as much as we've had for, I think, Scary Lucy was maybe 1500 Yeah, that's about right. And then Happy Effing was even less was than that. was like 500 bucks. Um, yeah. Because most of Happy Effing Valentine's Day was originally coming out of my pocket. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's one of the ways that we've been able to grow Project DU Film. Um, and we've been able to, I think... Uh, prove that we've been really fiscally responsible and Angela certainly is at the top of that pyramid because she's she's asked to do a whole lot with very little um, and she she does it she yeah. does it every time but I'll pimp the students I'll just go on record and say that because poor Sarah has had to make some of the strangest phone calls <laughs> and I know that I can get some with my puppy brown Labrador eyes and my you know this is a give back to the community and I'm volunteering my time and that goes really far and we'll get around to that again. But I also know that if I have Sarah or Sammy make a phone call or an email as students, there's a lot more leg room for lots of opportunities. And I know Sarah was very creative at getting a few things donated that saved us about a good 600 bucks in our budget. Yeah, and I want Sarah to talk about that because uh, one of the things that we did with Scary Lucy was that we had a list of alumni who had flower shops and balloon shops and... Uh, hotels. Um, so, Sarah, maybe you could talk about um, the, a couple of the challenges. The and gurney? Then, talk about the gurney, yeah, Sarah. A couple of the successes <laughs> that you had in finding these really intricate, important props for Scary Lucy. Um, yeah, so I'll start with the gurney. The gurney. <laughs> <laughs> so, for Scary Lucy, Angela came to me. She's like, We need a gurney. I was like, Okay, I don't even know what that is, but okay, <laughs> I'll try to find it. Um, and we kind of discussed, like, what are the things, like, how can we find them? So we started looking on eBay and find these very scary, um, kind of something you would see in, like, a horror movie type of thing. And it's like, it looks like it's from the 20s. I don't know if that's what we need, but it could be. So we kept our options open. Like, we took note of, like, who had it. Like, okay, where can we keep looking? It's like, I don't have no money to give you. Like, I, I just need it. Um, so that's not very a convincing argument for someone. <laughs> like, I have nothing to give you. I just need it. Um, but I ended up going to EMT programs throughout the Denver area. And we looked out with a community college because they had a great EMT program. And they're like, yeah, just come look at our closet. And I was like, okay. I showed up. And they just had a bunch of stuff. They're like, what do you need? You can, like, take anything. And I'm like, okay. Like, I need this whole gurney. And they're like, okay, like, we can give it to you now. It's like, it's not going to fit in my CRV, but thank you. <laughs> um, so we set up. They're like, well, just word, like, we'll make this agreement with you right now. As long as you get it returned to us and, like, in good condition, like, everything's fine. Anything to support students. Hmm. Like, okay, great. Check. Wow. Um, and then the other big things, which I didn't realize how expensive they were, were like balloons and flowers. Like flowers are very expensive. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and we had to make a lobby look like a lobby, yeah. like a grand lobby with big, beautiful, floral hotel lobbies. And those are like two to $300 a piece, mm -hmm. those arrangements. Wow. So ended up talking to some like local contacts of people who could help us. And we were able to get flower arrangements and balloons for free from, I think, balloons, like, a couple of local vendors who I just pitched our project to them. Like, I'm a student. Um, as a student, it's you have a lot of pool of just saying this is a really great learning experience, and you'd be really be able to help us 
kind of succeed at this project, and they were more than willing to help. So that just really goes to say it's worth asking anyone. It's worth sending an email, even if you can get, like, a discounted item. Mm. It's better than paying full price for anything. And I think that's transitioned into, like, my own life of just being um, a current student teacher and will be on my own being a teacher, a young teacher who does not – make a lot of money as right. a teacher <laughs> and also being young it's just like okay what can I do to like get into my community and be like okay I need to start building a classroom library but I don't have all this money to spend or I need to start like collecting all of these things for my future classroom but I can't give you money I just need donations because it's for the education of our youth <laughs> <laughs> it's so. amazing how those lessons really do mm-hmm. translate you know beyond just the filmmaking and into other areas of our lives and I just want to uh Reemphasize how important that role was for us on on Scary Lucy because uh, we just couldn't afford uh, flowers and balloons and um, Sarah came through for us big time. Mm, but wonderful. we needed them. They had to be there, otherwise it just looked like an event center, and that wasn't good enough. <laughs> just, <laughs> right, absolutely, it wasn't good absolutely. enough. We had to have holiday balloons and a mm-hmm. giant banner that was only on camera for ten seconds, but you wouldn't have believed a convention was going on without a banner. Right. So. Right. Yeah. All right. So our final question: Which one of these art directors listed won at the 88th Academy Awards in 2015 for Best Art Director? Um, so the options are Arthur Max for The Martian, Eve Stewart in The Danish Girl. Colin Gibson from Mad Max Fury Road, and Jack Fisk in The Revenant. As a woman, of course, I want to say Eve Stewart because this is a really male-dominant feel. (laughs) But once again, I'd be lying if I told you I knew the answer off the top of my head because it's within the last 11 years. So, so, (laughs) Tammy, do you know that one? I watch the Oscars every year (laughs) and and hope that eventually I'll be there. Um, But... I watch them so many times and so many, you know, like I, it all kind of flows together at this point. So I think you might have to tell us the answer to this one too. Any guesses, Sarah? No. <laughs> Sheila? I'm going to guess the Mad Max. It was Colin Gibson from Good Mad Max Free Road. That was, uh, I think the production design on that movie was incredible. All right, you've just thrown down the gauntlet. I'm going to put it in my watch list. And next quote, date night, next decade. (laughs) Uh, Do the sets and productions uh, you create ever reflect places and settings from your own life? Oh, you know what? This current project really does in in a lot of ways because uh, my family are hunters. And I grew up with the smell of that gun oil and my dad cleaning the rifles out and my mom plucking the feathers to make the vest with. And and so just that authentic hunting experience. My uncle also hunted and he confessed to me that he used to take my brother to a small bar in upstate Wisconsin that would turn into a strip joint um, during hunting season. And so I know these people. Um, mm. I have met these people. I know the scenario. I know the backstory. I, so I would say, as respectfully as possible, yes, I also know, well, the Scary Lucy was just a blast because my grandmother was like queen of decor in the 50s, and I have lots of her objects. So you, if you watch that film, you will see large touches of swaths of color that came from that world. Um, so I would say you, you can't not go fall back on your own history when you're doing these things. Plus also just the real world of having soldered plumbing in my bathroom before and having to solve things with a tension rod and and all the other sort of tricks up your sleeve that you get into when you're on a set. And Sheila says, oh, we need this sparkly background to disappear on the set of comedy works. Can you 
cover this entire 30-foot length of wall, 12 feet high, <laughs> that sparkles. And, um, well, I just so happened to have a roll of um, tablecloth, linen, uh, no, it's actually vinyl tablecloth. And there I was with these poor, <laughs> poor boys from DU pinning tablecloths <laughs> to the walls of the comedy works. Angela is the MacGyver of the film world. <laughs> um, she, she really is. And um, I, there is nothing that we have asked her to do that she couldn't figure out a way to do it. Mm. Um, and that's, that's how you have to be on a film set. But um, So there's an expectation, but that Angela delivers every time, <laughs> that's just, that's an incredible partner. Yeah, and she's able to do all of these amazing last-minute kind of changes because she has an absolutely amazing toolkit. I mean, <laughs> I walked on set for the first day, and I brought myself, and I knew that wasn't going to go very far about an hour into the set. So the next day, I full-on, I went to the store, I full-on got right, uh, a <laughs> uh, uh, fanny pack, scissors, a Tide pen, because you need a Tide pen. Angela mentioned that every single day. But, like, scissors and pins and just the amount of things that she carries on set is quite quite amazing and she's able to you know quickly and um, efficiently um, get these things done is because she comes prepared um she prepares for apocalyptic um, <laughs> scenarios on a film set and what could possibly go wrong and she brings 10 options to fix that one problem you know i get a lot of pride when the lighting department asks to dig in my box. <laughs> and I, you know, because usually the production department is a laughing stock of a, like the TV world or something. But when I see the gaffer saying, Angela, do you have an extra stinger? Well, as a matter of fact, I got three and they're all labeled. If it's not back in my box, you are dead to me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, you gotta keep them. track of your stuff. Yeah, it's all labeled. It's right. like, <laughs> it's so easy to know where it is. The funniest thing was we, we worked on one set through the Women in Film Media Colorado and this one woman was great. She wanted to understand film, so she joined up with the production department, and really, she's a producer. And they're the, they mean well, but it was like the Lucille Ball in my box. And finally, I looked at Sarah and said, Sarah, I need this, this, and this. And she'd go in my box and knew exactly where it was because my box is organized, and everything has a place and a place for everything. And when I say I need it, it's in this left corner. Sarah knows. If I say, Sammy, that one scarf would look great on her, and it's in this left lower drawer of the blah, blah, blah. Sammy knows what I'm talking about. But order, 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 <laughs> and everything has a place. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I need to make myself one of these toolkits, apparently. Well, what's really funny is on, a, on these sets, you'll see the people who are working in key roles will have certain objects on their body, whether it's tech pants, and they'll carry certain things on them. And it's really rich to see the students who are super observant. The very next day, like Sammy said, she showed up with pockets, with a fanny pack. And when you see the professionals working, it's only the uninitiated who show up with yoga pants and they're outdoors in the hot sun all day and you'll look around and all the pros are wearing their heavy corduroy because they know they're going to be kneeling in dirt or they've got their sunscreen their giant hats on and they're not going to be burned to a crisp in an outdoor film shoot so it's actually been really exciting to see the students who observe and then start picking up some of those street level um, learned uh, solutions right all right, real quick, just to jump back for a second, um, and this is a question for all three of you. Um, what is one or multiple things that you valued most from your time working with Project DU Film? I would just say the opportunity to observe. Mm -hmm. um, 
a my first film with Project EU Film was Scary Lucy. And I showed up and it's just like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know what production design actually entails yet. Um, but everyone was just so open to like, this is the process. This is what we're going through, um, what we're thinking about, just because there was a lot of like student PAs standing around. Um, and then, like, everyone was just sure to like involve people in the conversation. And I was so grateful for that, just because I was able to learn so much more about being on a set outside of just production design. Because hmm. even though I was primarily working with Angela and Sammy, I was able just to like go off and just observe like what's happening with camera, what's happening um, with sound and lighting. And they're like, oh, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. It's like, oh, okay, that makes so much sense. And that helps kind of inform like what actually is going on here at large. Yeah, and for me, it would be two things. Specifically, you know, if you're not going to get paid or have a really sexy budget, <laughs> you got to get something out of it as a professional. And I would say the Sheila provided me the opportunity to really be challenged as a professional. And if I had started up in the film world, it would take me forever to ever enter the role of production designer. There's so mm. many more hoops and whatnot. But Sheila took a leap of faith and just took stock of what I had done and where I had gone and understood that I probably could do this. And so I really appreciated the ability to stretch professionally, um, coming at it from a real different entry point than most people would. And then also working with students again, because I hadn't taught in about a good 10 years. I mean, a parent is a teacher, but that's different. These people here at DU listen to me. That's, that's <laughs> the biggest difference. <laughs> but but because I would have, because it was a teaching set, it, we encouraged people to ask questions when it was appropriate. If we weren't in the heat of a moment, hold the question when there was a space, we could answer it. And and so much happens when you have a connoisseurship and years of experience, you start making decisions without understanding the why behind it, because it's in that, that uh, experiential connoisseur knee-jerk response. And so if Sammy would say, well, why are you making that decision? It was a really wonderful opportunity to say, oh, I'll tell you why. And there were a couple times on Scary Lucy where um, somebody who had nothing to do with the production department said, you are staring, and I know you're not just staring into space. What are you thinking right now? Hmm. And I would say, well, you guys have the camera here, and I'm looking at all the places my eye can go in what needs a little dab of color or a touch here, a touch there, because lighting is having to do something, and, and camera has to change lenses, and I need to put something here, and we've got some extras, and they've got great colors, and we need to put them over there. So, so I really enjoy that a student will ask me questions. Um, because it causes me to be more thoughtful, mindful, and also to own up that nothing is frivolous. It's not just, oh, I think it'd be cool. Uh, mm. But it really requires me to pony up what I'm asking of them as well. Mm. Uh, being a film major here at the University of Denver, it was it was an amazing experience overall. And given the fact that I did take the narrative sequence and the documentary sequence, um, I was firsthand able to experience the caliber um, of the student films here um, and seeing the rest of the projects and, you know, being able to sit and, you know, go do our premieres and see all of the wonderful work um, being able to be shown in front of an audience. It's really amazing um, to see that caliber. But when you get to a DU, a Project DU film set, it's not a student film anymore. It's the next level. Um, mm -hmm. Although there are students working on the film and PAing and, um, you know, one of us or a couple of us in every single department, um, it really is 
the next level. And it gives you that opportunity to make that transition from student filmmaker to filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And you're able to make that transition because of the wonderful mentorship that you are able to to build um, on set, um, not only professionally, but personally, and being able to have that experience to take with you um, into the next step and to be able to look back and say, hey, you know, like, are you willing to write me a letter of recommendation or being able mm-hmm. to put it on your your resume so that when you are looking for that next um, that next project, you are that much more prepared. Um, and most of all, it's fun. It's absolutely fun and <laughs> a great time. And to be able to spend quality time with people who are as passionate as about film as you are is really heartwarming and good for the soul. And you're able to, to really just look back and realize that you are so blessed and so fortunate to have been able to been a part of something and when you get to see it on a big screen and audiences laughing or an audience is cheering up that you know you had a part of that all right so angela back to you for a moment yeah. uh, <laughs> not only have you worked rather on smaller productions but also big ones like pbs can you talk to us a little bit about what your role was working with pbs Um, what your expectations were like going in and how the overall outcome reflected that. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I started working in PBS uh, when I was at the University of Florida, Go Gators. And um, they have a university relationship to the PBS station there. And so I was able to, I got hired based on the fact that I could draw really well and I was organized. (laughs) And so another person from a drawing class recommended me. And and so I have to have another one of those full disclosure guilty moments. I never took a single graphic design class. But I took composition, color theory, and and so most of my hands-on of design, of illustration, of ad layout, of typography, all come from hands-on learning, hmm. and also just being selfly self-motivated to just be a geek and learn, <laughs> you know, independent of classes. And PBS was was a great place to be with somebody who has lots of these type of elements because, you know, if you've got ADD and you want to touch this and you want to touch that and you want to try this, you do. They're a very small staff. So one day I would illustrate for an ad. The next day I'd lay that ad out. Another day I'd be down in the basement figuring out motion graphics. And then the next day you're out in the shop building sets for a fundraiser or for something like that. So you really learned to kind of explore all those things. It wasn't until my master's that I brought it all together and knit the sort of editing, video, lighting component, but I did reflect all those others in my undergraduate and my professional experience. And so PBS, I've kind of transitioned with them, unfortunately, with various different decisions and HDTV coming in and lots of cuts to their funding. They've gotten rid of a lot of their art departments. And so Mm. with a lot of that, you kind of lose a lot of continuity. So a lot of times, it's the editor who does the graphics and things like that, which is fine. It's just different than when you have somebody whose whole job is that visual communication and understands type and color and motion. So it's definitely transitioned. I still work with PBS on big projects, um, and that's anywhere from a set design. I've got four sets I'm working on with Channel 7 out in Salt Lake City. But a lot of those opportunities in the 80s and 90s to really just roll your sleeves up and get dirty have kind of disappeared and things have gotten more outsourced. So I feel like I was in this golden opportunity in this golden moment that doesn't exist anymore for um, ADD people, <laughs> redheaded stepchildren like myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
And um, the upcoming film from Project DU Film, Hunting Season, seems to be yet another great opportunity for production design. Uh, what has been your process for bringing this production to life? Okay, as anyone who's ever seen my script will tell you, I have about a million sticky notes, and I actually brought it here. So those that are listening can't see, but I have about six different colors, and each color represents a different aspect of production design. Mm. And I'll read the script first for content, second with questions, and third for if there's any graphics that need to happen, another time for props that are actually physically in the hands, whether the script calls for it or I imagine what are those waitresses doing? They're having a conversation. The script doesn't tell me what they're doing. But in my mind, I think, well, they're pouring coffee in the bar back, so I need to script that. Mm. And then there'll be something for location and uh, scene tweaking um, and wardrobe. So I'll do that first. And I will sometimes know the script better than a lot of the directors, um, mainly because of that. And when I work with a student, I ask them to read the script six times. And mm. at first, I think I'm crazy. <laughs> And then I'll test them. Can you go through your prop list? Can you go through your scene list? Can you go through your this list? And I will say I am so respectful of the students, but when you ask them to do that, they do. And they have such thorough, thorough, and sometimes they'll catch me even. Oh, you need a Wyoming license plate on that truck. Or, oh, that boy is working the bar. What kind of rag does he have? And I'm so proud of the students that come from the program because when you do ask, they do deliver. Mm. And in this particular one, because I do come from a lot of hunting background. I've interviewed tons of hunters uh, just to verify that certain aspects of the script are authentic. Called for shotguns. Coloradans and Wyoming don't use shotguns. Our deer are too big. So yeah, that's a level of detail that maybe matters or doesn't matter, but I'm going to put a rifle if I can, or you know, I'm going to make sure that we're in that mode so nobody comes out of the narrative because they say, wait a minute, we don't have you know, white-tailed deer here, you're right. We have mule. I have to make sure that what's on set is a mule deer. Mm. Um, so I've done a lot of that. And then, like I said, going and interviewing a lot of my neighbors who are also hunters and seeing if I can find props that would be in a bar. Uh, I've been in those bars in upstate Wisconsin. I just need to make sure that the walleye is now a rainbow trout on the wall. And mm. they you know, make some things like that. But I try to go to that next level of interviewing so that things are more authentic. And when I read the script, it calls for a certain car, and then I'll verify with the director, in this case, Sheila, does it have to be the car that you called for? Well, it just needs to be other than an American-made or other than a this or older than a this, looking like somebody who doesn't have funds to take on a car payment. Mm. And those are the sorts of levels that I'll research. Um, and I will, poor Sheila, I will give her a sheet of questions at least four times in the course of two months just to fine-tuned these things down. And then poor Sammy and Sarah will receive these to-do lists. Sarah, can you call every single archery range on the front range to see if they have a deer mold that we can use? <laughs> like, huh. Yeah, and she says poor Sheila, but what she really does is she gets me to think more about character. She gets me to more think more about theme and about story uh, and about plot and about blocking. So I think uh, any good member of your team, it, you're building with them, right? And so I, I, Angela is our head builder, right? She's got a hammer and a metaphorical hammer, of course, and she is, is helping to put together um, what becomes our films. And that's the kind of partner I want. <clears throat> that's the part, kind of teacher I want for our students and our alumni. Um, that is the kind of partner that uh, at Project DU Film we are absolutely fortunate to have. 
I definitely have to correct you, Sheila. She does have a metaphorical hammer, but she also has a baby <laughs> hammer, and she has several big hammers, and she has hammer, a probably. hammer box on set ready to go. Yeah, you, are, you are absolutely correct, Sammy. Oh, tell me more about my eyes. How am I going to live with myself now? Yeah, this is wonderful. All right, so in comparison to previous productions, how does Hunting Season differ you know, from Scary Lucy and Happy Effing Valentine's Day? Uh, this one definitely puts me into an uncomfortable comfortable zone. Um, mm. I am not a fan of uh, suspense or uh, horror or or things like that. And so my happy place is always the children's show or the comedy or the using comedy to talk about tough subjects. And so this definitely is more subtle, uh, more gritty, mm. um, violent. And these are not, I'm, I'm a unicorn and fuzzy bunny and rainbow <laughs> kind of person. So this is definitely causing me to go into those places. And so the the palette, the color palette that has been approved is more subtle, mm. um, more subtle in the variations. Uh, it communicates tired, wear, tear, bleached in the sun. You know, Scary Lucy was a blast. I mean, you could use all these colors that they used in the 50s to make black and white and all the different variations. So that mm. was a... You know, as a designer, that was like, woohoo! This is more subtle. The props have to be more subtle and more edgy. If there is a poster, can that poster show a little bit of sexism that is kind of at that cusp of okay but not okay, and okay depending on what environment you're in. And so we're having to script things to not be over the top but just at that edge. And so it's definitely a little more... um, it's definitely challenging for me, which is, you know, one thing I uh, why I keep coming back for more abuse from <laughs> Project DU Film is because I'm a glutton for that level of of challenge, ultimately. Yeah. Mm. And, and there are beanie babies, so don't, oh, don't forget that. That's right. Angela, she's got beanie babies. Okay, Sheila, are we talking 30-year-old beanie babies or the big-eyed beanie boos that are popular right now? Are we talking about <laughs> bears or are we talking about exotic animals? And then Sheila's like, well— I actually do have an opinion, if you put it that way. (laughs) So, so yeah, I'm art directing Beanie Babies, which is not as easy as you think. (laughs) It really isn't. If you need any, I've got three giant boxes at my house. Seriously? Are they tired? Are they, like, used? Are they Uh, loving? Are they, like, kind of pristine? Well, I'd have to check. That's That was my sister's world, but I might be able to— Wrangle up a few of those. Okay, that's great. We'll talk after. Yeah. We'll talk yeah. after. <laughs> well, and and we found out earlier that Abby has a an old family truck that we're going to be using in the production. So you just, <laughs> you know, you have to talk these projects up. You have to let people know. You have to put it into the ether um, and find out what's available. And people um, have been so, so generous. Uh, obviously, a- Angela has a, a vast uh, uh, network of people. I mean, that's how we got a pink Cadillac, a 1950s pink Cadillac. But, but just sitting around the table here, look at how things are coming together. Yeah, just pink- by putting it into the ether. <laughs> and the pink Cadillac is funny because the script called for a convertible Ford, and I, I was actually at a friend's house who called me up and said, "Hey, I've got a lot of 50s." jewelry, shoes, and I made a special trip with my daughter to, and her friends to go out to Golden to pick up this wardrobe. And I jokingly off the cuff said, oh, you and wouldn't happen to have a convertible Ford, would you? And I was laughing. She says, well, we have a Model A, but we do have a 50 Ford, or pardon me, a 50s pink Cadillac named Anton. Would that work? <laughs> 
I'm like, you're kidding. No. In mint condition, chrome. And she said, oh, we'd love to have that on set. I almost fell over when she, well, in fact, I I had to sit down uh, when she texted me those pictures of that Cadillac because I thought, no way with the budget that we had for Scary Lucy are we going to be able to afford a prop like this? And who comes through but Angela? <laughs> well, actually, Cindy and Willard, but but that's beside the point. Well, that kind of brings us to our next little piece here. So one of the greatest things about Project D Film is the ability to create a community within and beyond the walls of University of Denver. With film, there's always the need for design elements and partnerships within the community to help provide these opportunities. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of those amazing community partners is Linda Abbott. Uh, for all of you who don't know, Linda is the owner of the Salvage Design Center, an amazing business in Denver that repurposes elements of homes, barns, and other aged properties. Salvage Design Center is relatively new and hosts a craftsman fair once a month where vendors, professional woodworkers, liturgists, and even pet adoption services come together to create amazing events for the community of Denver. Yeah, I, I have to say, I was actually so overwhelmed by that location that I had to leave. I mean, <laughs> as a visual thinker, I went in there, and I was not prepared for what was before me. It was like the candy shop. It was, I literally, they remember, that they'll even tell you they remember the day I came in, and my eyes just glazed over, and I said, I'm sorry, but I have to leave. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I walked in there, and it was one big set designer, production designer's happy place. And at first, I started with you know, I'm trying to find license plates, Wyoming license plates on eBay. They're $12 a piece, and I need at least 12 of them, and I only need them for one night. And do, would you guys give me a cut rate or a rental rate or something? She said, what are you doing? And I told her, and she said, oh, my gosh, I love that idea. I love partnering with a university and an educational. What if you just give us a shout-out and we'll let you borrow anything in our store? Oh, hello. What? Or <laughs> anything at our other store, the antique broker, and we'll be happy just inventory it and we'll be happy to let you borrow it. It turns out that I could not, I mean, like I had to leave the room again and wipe the tears from my eyes and the snot <laughs> under my nose and get poor Sarah out of bed on a day off and say, come on, we're taking some pictures <laughs> and, and we're making an inventory yeah. list. Um, yeah. So we're extremely grateful to partners like the Salvage Design Center uh, because they also understand the importance of that give back. And the I think what impressed them was people volunteering of their time and their talent to help bring up, like Sammy said earlier, that next generation and give them that rich learning experience and they wanted to help make that possible. Mm. And this is also a way that you take $2,000 and you actually at the end of a production say, hey, Sheila, I came in under budget. <laughs> <laughs> Which is music to my ears. And Sheila, you mentioned the other day when we were talking about one of the needs for hunting season is a full parking lot of a certain type of vehicle and everything. And you had mentioned a partnership here in the community that's helping facilitate that. Well, we've... Um We've identified uh, the parking lot we want to use. It's a parking lot down uh, in Larkspur at um, uh, a pizza uh, company, mm -hmm. right? A pizza shop down there, uh, Larkspur Pizza. And uh, we stopped by the mayor's office, uh, and Marvin has been an amazing partner. He mm -hmm. spent um, part of an afternoon uh, working with our producer, Juan Lee, uh, looking all over uh, Larkspur, trying to find a property for us to uh, film a, sh a side of the road scene. Hmm. Actually, there are several scenes that take place on the side of the road. And uh, while we're still sort of firming that up, he he was tremendous in just working with us and trying to make our dreams come true, really. And I think um, I certainly my... Um, my faith in humanity has been 
reestablished over and over and over and over again by the generosity of the people around us who have pitched in to help with Project DU Film, and certainly Angela is at the top of that list as, mm-hmm. as um, uh, our vo- uh, volunteer, right? Always, I mean, she's volunteering her time and effort and talents and has made, uh, I would say, the biggest impact on Project DU Film uh, of all of our volunteers. Seriously? Seriously. How come it takes mm. a room full of strangers to tell to tell me that, <laughs> Sheila? <laughs> so last but not least, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners, and again, this is for all three of you, about the process, the steps it took in order to get to where you are, any other advice you have for upcoming filmmakers? Um, one thing I know uh, is something that Sammy told me uh, when she was working on Scary Lucy is that you said you never thought you would see your art degree and your film degree necessarily sort of come together. And when you were working on that statue, you know, working with the sculpture, it seemed very much that there was that synergy there. Um, and I'm just wondering sort of how does that impact kind of moving forward, uh, whether it be with Project DU Film, working on your other projects, that the, those synergies that you're seeing between those two worlds. Um, so when I first started at the university, I was actually a computer science major, um, and I did that for two years, um, and film was my minor. Um, and I went through a lot of personal hardships, and I really found salvation in my creative classes, um, film in particular. Um, and then I started taking art classes, and they were they weren't. I didn't take these classes with the idea or mindset that I would be making a career out of them. Mm. Um, it was really for um, uh, my own heart, my own soul. The um, really doing it for myself. And I found amazing people um, in these classes that, you know, really came together and um, brought me up from a very dark time in my life. And Sheila mentioned, I didn't even imagine that they could merge, um, which was an interesting realization when I, uh, one summer, you know, in Angela's carport building a building up a mannequin sculpture. So it really was an aha moment for me, a really big tipping point for me, um, being able to merge both of these things. Going forward um, with my art and my film, um, I've been working on a film um, that I've been writing on um, for the past couple of years now, and I've been able to pull lessons that I've learned from my art degree and specifically sculpture and color and kind of uh, the the background that Angela was talking about from her undergrad and pulling from my film experiences and um, how to write a script, how to block it, how to, you know, everything that we're talking about in the process of making um, these films here at Project DU and really using all of that um, to move forward. And, um, I still felt that there was something missing there, although I was able to merge two big parts of my life. And so now going forward, I'm really interested in law and entertainment law Mm. and pushing myself to um, start the process of um, going back to school. And so it's it's a really big personal testament for me to realize that all of us have so many different strengths that we use um, and the group brain, we all bring something together, but within yourself, you have so many parts of yourself that you have to serve and 
being able to find something that you can serve all the parts of yourself, the logic side, the creative side, the hmm. artistic side, the creative side, and being able to merge that. And if you're able to find something that can merge everything, um, then that's then you're you're really lucky and you're one of the very few who are able to do that. So I'm really blessed to be a part of Project U Film because it was the one time that I was able to have that aha moment and realize that I can serve lots of sides of myself. Hmm. Beautiful. Nobody should follow the process I took to get here <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, actually, no, it's funny now that I'm more comfortable referring to myself as a production designer, I realize all the steps I took make sense. The undergraduate in a BFA program, the graduate degree of an MFA within, you know, time-based media and focusing on that. Hmm. And then also having taught before really gave me the ability to understand the best ways to bring out the best in people. And also discovering that film is kind of, I guess, in a lot of ways, my happy place, just like everybody else sitting at this table. When you work in a studio working on your own work, it's very self-indulgent. You're by yourself. You rely on yourself. And when you're in a film production, you're a team. You have to be a team. There are too many elements. You can't micromanage. You have to do what you do really well and not mm. overstep what you do well. Mm. Um, and in terms of like a takeaway, if I were to talk to a student and talk, you know, kind of diegetically put one small word around what production design does, I would remind people that production design is not decoration. It is design, it's communication, it's service of the narrative. And it's those moments between dialogue that we really focus on. And so I'd, I'd like to explain that to students, especially the first time on a teaching set, because there is no time for a smaller program to really hit on production design. There's so many aspects to it that a, a school can't do that. So I really appreciate the opportunity to teach that aspect. And you know, some people are like, nah I'm, nah, I'm lighting or nah, I'm sound. And that's great. But there have been really some rich moments where people say, oh, wait a minute. This is my world. I am that redheaded stepchild that doesn't need to direct. Or is it comfortable holding the camera? Or as Sarah would say, don't make me touch that microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I realized my love for film in high school. And... I was fortunate enough to have a program in high school that was just starting up the year that I left, but I just learned so many things. I was like, I want to do this. Like, this is so cool. And going to college, I had the opportunity to go to L.A. Um, for undergrad, but it wasn't going to work out. And so I came to DU, and then I just kind of abandoned that dream because I was like, I don't want to do it here. Um, when I had the opportunity to go to L.A., I don't want to do it here. Mm. So I decided to major in English, eventually finding myself in creative writing and then tacking on a communication studies major. Mm. And I didn't realize how well both of those majors would intertwine of just the art of communicating and the art of storytelling. And then I decided to come back to a film minor. And all three of those areas just blended so well that it was amazing. It's just like I'm passionate about storytelling and the creative education. Um, so how can we get students to express themselves? How do we offer them these different avenues to doing that? Hmm. Um, and I found that in like my entire undergrad experience here at DU. And I, I know we're wrapping up, but I have one more question. And this I'm going to put Sarah and uh, Sammy on the spot because – uh, one of the things that we do at Project DU Film is we create 
stories that are inclusive in front of the camera, and we um, work very hard to be inclusive behind the camera. So as two women of color, how do you see your, yourselves benefiting from this program? As a woman of color, and specifically as a woman of color who has experienced as many adversity as I have, including um, being born with an amputation and getting into a world that is very physical, it's very challenging, um, I really find myself in a position, an opportunity to be able to tell stories that haven't been told yet Mm. um, and to have learned from so many different people um, on how to do that and how to express yourself. Because really, um, like Angela um, mentioned prior to this question, when you guys asked her how much of her home life or how much of her personal life do you bring to the screen, I think that that's imperative when you work in film, um, especially when you are a minority and you are in a group of people that isn't necessarily represented in an authentic way. Um, I feel like we are now being equipped with the tools to be able to tell those stories. Mm. Um, My cultures, I am Native American and Mexican, are heavily rooted in storytelling. And I was raised on that Mm. ideal of what are the stories of our cultures, what are the stories of our families and the people around us, and how can we kind of share that with the world? And starting from a young age, that was always kind of built into, like, the way my mother and father taught me about the world through sharing stories and be like, how can you kind of harness all of your experiences into something that you can share with people in order to help them in any sort of way? Mm. As a woman of color... I think I've just realized this now. It's very important. Um, I'm teaching at a school that is 98% Hispanic, and I've never been in that environment. And it's so cool. But the first day I walked in, the kids were so excited to have a teacher who was of color. Hmm. And when I shared that I have two last names, all of my students have two last names. And they're like, me too. So do I. Like, that's so cool. I've never... um, had a teacher who's looked like me. And these are like 11-year-olds who have, they've gone their entire education not having a teacher who looks like them. And it may really, this year, it really made me realize how important it is as someone who has been given so many opportunities that I take advantage of them, mm-hmm. that I say, yes, I can do it. Because I want people, children, to see that this is an option for them, that you really can do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. And It's amazing. Thank you both for sharing. Mm -hmm. Angela, Sarah, and Sammy, on behalf of everyone listening at home and the amazing production team of Moving Pictures, the Project DU Film Podcast, we want to thank you for your incredible and valuable insight into the world of production design. I'm sure the information you've provided will go a long way and will be helpful to our listeners. For more information on the topics from today's episode, please visit storylab.du.edu backslash Film, And join us next time for our episode of the production process of hunting season where Abby will walk you through all the different elements of being on set for hunting season. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Ryan Rose. And I'm your co-host, Abby Scadden. Until next time, this is Moving Pictures, the Project DU Film Podcast. Thank you for listening to and supporting Moving Pictures, the Project DU Film Podcast. As with any project, your support is what helps us continue on. 
For more information on how to get involved with Moving Pictures, please visit movingpixpod.com and follow us at Moving Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Project U Film, or Film Initiative Linked to Mentors, is a collaborative, experiential mentorship filmmaking program bringing together faculty, professional alumni, and students to create, promote, and distribute films. Project U Film is part of the University of Denver's 501c3 nonprofit, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you again for supporting Moving Pictures.